Prayer can take many forms as that drama just demonstrated. But what do you do when you are faced with a crisis that calls for extraordinary prayer? We intercede, we ask, we confess sin, we make our requests, but there are going to be times in our lives when we are faced with a set of circumstances that is just absolutely beyond our control, hitting us in the face all at one time. We go into panic mode. Everybody around is freaking out. So what do you do when everyone is freaking out and you're tempted to freak out with them? That calls for a time of concentrated, extraordinary prayer, asking God to intervene and to do a work that only He can do. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, uh, but we live in a culture today that just seems to be in constant freak-out mode. Every time you uh, turn on the television or you get on a, a news app or whatever, or on Facebook, etc., people are just freaking out about everything under the sun. We have gone into constant freak-out mode. So how do we respond to that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2 today, Daniel chapter 2, I mean a series of messages through the book of Daniel, and we're going to look today that God is in control when everyone is freaking out. God is still in control when everyone is freaking out. Now, the temptation we have is to think that the character of God and the person of God and the power of God, etc., is subject to what the circumstances around us are like. So if we're freaking, then God must be freaking. If it seems like it's out of control, then it really is out of control. And that was what Daniel was tempted to think in the set of circumstances that he found himself faced with in Daniel chapter 2. Allow me to give you a brief background, and then I'm not going to read the entire chapter. We're going to focus in on certain verses within the chapter. But what I'm going to do is try to give you the context out of which those verses that we're going to particularly focus on take place. Now, as we saw several weeks ago, Daniel was living in Israel, and Jehoiakim, who was the king, had done a stupid thing, and that is that he had entered into a military alliance with Egypt. And Egypt got into a war with Babylon. And back in those days, the one empire you did not want to get into a war with was Babylon. Because Babylon, under King Nebuchadnezzar, had the strongest army, the mightiest empire, and they were on the rise. And so Jehoiakim makes a strategic blunder when he gets into this alliance with Egypt. And he is laid siege by Babylon. Babylon takes control of Jerusalem... And Daniel and a whole bunch of the young folks in Israel are deported to Babylon. That was very characteristic of what they did back in those days. If one nation conquered another nation, then they would deport all of the folks that they considered to be intelligent, have all kinds of skills and abilities, because the idea was that they would incorporate them into the conquering nation. So they take all these folks to Babylon, and among them are Daniel and three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they get there, they change their names, they change their culture, they even try to change the food that they're eating. All of this is an attempt to try to basically immerse them in Babylonian culture and get them to serve the Babylonian uh, people, and in particular, King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel refuses when they get to the place of eating the food. And the reason he says, I don't want to eat your food and drink your wine is because he's trying to say by that, I am not going to submit who I am 
100% to Babylon and to King Nebuchadnezzar. In those days, if you ate someone's food and drank what they were drinking, it was your way of saying, if you were a conquered person, I am 100% yours and I am submitting myself to you. Daniel would not do that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not do that because they said, in the end, we serve the Lord God and Him only. Even though we are a long ways from Israel and from everything we grew up with, we belong to the Lord and we belong to Him exclusively. Now, we think the context of Daniel chapter 2 is this. Nebuchadnezzar, as I mentioned, was the rising king, sovereign on the scene in that day, and Babylon was the rising power. Egypt was sort of one of the great powers that was in the process of going, sort of, we might say nowadays, down the tube. And there was a great battle that took place at a place called Carchemish. And that was where the forces of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar came right into contact with the forces of Egypt. And they engaged in a great battle at Carchemish. And Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian forces defeat the Egyptians, which would have meant that now Nebuchadnezzar reigns as the king of the world or the known world of the Middle East at that time. In other words, nobody got in the court of power and strength like Nebuchadnezzar did. So Nebuchadnezzar would have been walking around his court thinking he was the man. And he was the man. They had just knocked out Egypt. No other power out there got close to his. So he thought he was the man. And then he lays down and he goes to sleep one night. And in his sleep, he begins to have this weird dream that we'll examine in a few minutes. And he wakes up. And the Bible says here in Daniel chapter 2 that his spirit was disquieted or shaken up. If you'd have met him in the hallway that morning, you'd have seen a king who went to bed the night before who looked like he was the man. And if you met him that morning, his face would have been white, his knees would have been shaken a little bit. And, and he was just a whole different person. You see, I don't care how great and powerful somebody gets, God always knows how to prick us right at the place where he can get our attention. And so Nebuchadnezzar wakes up that morning from that dream, and he is freaking out himself. Now, there was a tremendous amount of thought in those days that the gods communicated to people through dreams. So much so that ancient rulers would keep all kinds of magicians and chanters and so forth around them and a big part of their responsibility was to interpret dreams to the king. Because that was the way they believed they received revelations about who, who they were, what they were supposed to do, what was going to happen next, how they were supposed to rule. And so Nebuchadnezzar's got all of these... I mean, you talk about somebody who's got advisors and chanters and magicians and you name it around them, it's Nebuchadnezzar. So he summons these folks in. Now, Daniel and his three friends, though they would have been part of that group, were not in the group that he summons in to meet with him. They were not, you might want to say, at the top of the rank at that time. So Nebuchadnezzar summons all his magicians and chanters, you name it, all his dream interpreters. He brings them all into the room and he looks at them and he says, I've had this wicked dream. I had this wicked dream, I am freaking out, and I need to know what the dream is, and I need to know the interpretation of the dream. And all these chanters and dream interpreters, etc., look at him and they say, Well, Nebuchadnezzar, you just tell us what the dream was, and then we'll give you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm not telling you the dream. You've got to tell me the contents of the dream, and you've got to tell me the interpretation. 
And they're like, we can't interpret something if you don't even tell us what the dream is. Now, if you tell us what the dream is, we can give you an interpretation. But if you won't even tell us what the dream is, you're telling us we got to do the whole thing. Isn't there a way we can do that? And Nebuchadnezzar really ups the ante. He says, if you can't tell me what the dream was, you can't give me the, the dream details, and you can't interpret it for me, I'm going to have all of you killed. And he had the ability to do that. He was a dictator. I'm going to have all of you killed. Now, can you imagine being in the room and feeling the tension go up? Man, we got to, he's asked us to do the impossible, we're going to lose our lives. And so they just look at him and they say, there's no way we can do this. You won't even tell us the contents of the dream, let alone how can we interpret it. And so he's, he's mad now. It's not interesting. He's got all the power in the world, but he's got a temper to match it. Now, I mean, he is ticked and he says, fine, all of you, no good to me, all of you being killed. And so one of his guys, who's one of his advisors, who helps him out and assists him, goes to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, guys, you guys are going to be killed. And Daniel's like, do what? You're going to be killed. And Daniel's like, we've been just sitting over here behaving ourselves. What do you mean we're going to be killed? And he says, well, all these folks cannot interpret the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar has decided that everybody who's an advisor to him basically is going to be killed because he is so ticked off about this. Now, I want you to imagine the court drama that is going on here. Had you walked into the court of Babylon that day, you would have seen people running around, sweat pouring off of their faces, shaking like crazy, because all of them know they're about to, to come under the sword. They're about to be killed by Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody in the Babylonian court is freaking out. And the king is back in his throne room with his face as red as all get out because he's mad as a hornet that nobody can do his thing. And so Daniel is in this context and he's getting this word. Everyone is freaking out. And the temptation is to think that God is a long ways away and this situation is totally out of his control. So what does Daniel do? Daniel chapter 2, we're going to be... Join the story at verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or the Babylonian names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Two key words there, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the kings matter. And when Daniel finishes praying this prayer, he asked for permission to go see Nebuchadnezzar. 
And then he begins to explain to Nebuchadnezzar both the dream that he has had, and then Daniel gives the interpretation of that dream. And we'll look at that in just a few moments. As I said, when Daniel gets the word here, notice what he does in verse 17. Imagine you get up in the morning, you're doing your best to serve the king of Babylon, you're behaving yourself, there comes a knock on the door, the king's administrative assistant is standing at the door, he says, good morning Daniel, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, and you wait to get the instructions that you're supposed to receive for how you're supposed to serve the king today. And then the king's assistant looks at you with a very glum face, and he says, oh, I hate to tell you this, but this is your last day on earth, and you're about to be killed in a few moments. And uh, Daniel's standing there probably, and uh, like, what? And, and then he explains, the king's had this dream, nobody can give the interpretation, and king is really ticked off, and so everybody that falls into the category of being one of his advisors is going to be killed this day. I hope you have a great day, God bless you, and I'm out of here. And so Daniel is just standing there, and, and what does Daniel do? What is Daniel supposed to do? Daniel goes to his three companions, and he says, guys, I want you to pray and I want you to pray like you've never prayed. I want you to seek God that He will give us the dream and that He will give us the interpretation of the dream. Ask God to demonstrate His power over Nebuchadnezzar and his magicians. Now I want you to follow me on this. God had set this whole scenario up. And the reason God had set this scenario up is that he was trying to demonstrate to Nebuchadnezzar and to all these magicians, enchanters, etc., that he was really in control. Nebuchadnezzar went to bed thinking he was in control. He woke up of this the next morning feeling like everything was out of control to realize by the end of the day that God was in control. And folks, when the Lord allows a set of circumstances in our lives or in our culture, in our nation, in our world, that seems like it's all out of control, it's never all out of control. God is in control, but God often has to orchestrate circumstances for it to seem like it's out of control so that we will begin to look to Him as the one who is in control to follow His leadership. Now, how do you get in touch with God and the fact that He's in control? One simple word, prayer. Always pray first and pray through. Always pray first and pray through. What Daniel did here is he went to these guys, these close friends of his, and the first thing he did was pray. The first thing he told them to do was pray. And not just pray, but keep on praying until we get a word from God. Keep on praying until God gives us the dream and the interpretation of the dream. Now, our temptation is to do what when we're faced with a crisis? To use a modern term, to run around like our hair is on fire. I don't know about you, but I feel like I live in a day and age that every time I turn around, we're all running around like our hair is on fire. And like every day, there's a new reason to light the hair up and run around and freak out, etc. And that's always the temptation to do that. But rather, what we need to do is pray and follow Jesus. In the passage of Scripture that Kyle read earlier, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, Jesus walks up to the disciples, his would-be disciples, and he says to them one basic word, follow, follow me, follow me. That is the essence of discipleship, 
following Jesus, taking all of my cues from Jesus, and taking my emotional cues from Jesus, and my psychological cues from Jesus. You see, when Jesus said, follow me, he wasn't just meaning learn about me and get your theology and your doctrine right. He was also saying, get your psychology in line with my psychology. Get your emotions in line. And so often what we tend to do is we don't follow Jesus with our emotions. And that's why we run around freaking out all the time. Following Jesus means following him with my emotions. What Daniel did that day was Daniel did not need a study of Bible doctrine at that time on the who God is and what he was doing. He already had that down. He needed to take his emotions and say, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to see what God's doing. I'm going to pray first, and I'm going to pray through as to what God's doing and get in touch with God here and get a word from God and move with this. Now, we use an expression, pray about it. And that is when we face a set of circumstances and we're overwhelmed, we say pray about it. Or when we're upset about something, we'll tell folks, Pray about it. Now, I've been in pastoral ministry for 30, about 30 years, and I've noticed that we Christians do some weird stuff with praying about it. We love to talk about praying about it. But this is the way we tend to talk about it when we talk about praying about it. We'll say, did you pray about it? Yeah, I prayed about it. You ever encounter somebody do that? Did you pray about it? Yeah, I prayed about it. Let, let me tell you something. Anytime you ask somebody, did you pray about it? And their response is, yeah, I prayed about it. We ain't prayed about it. <laughs> All right? We have not prayed about it. We got more attitude after you prayed about it than before you prayed about it. We did not pray about it. My wife, whom I love dearly, loves to say that to me. Honey, did you pray about it? And that irritates me. Because I'm the preacher in the family. I'm the one who tells people they need to pray about it. She's not the one who's supposed to be telling me to pray about it. And so I will say to her, I prayed about it. <laughs> I don't want to hear any more about praying about it. I don't pray about it. When you and I really pray about it, we do not respond with, I prayed about it. Because you see, when I really pray about it, I take my spirit and put my spirit before the Holy Spirit. And I let his spirit calm my spirit down. And the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ takes control of me. And so my attitude becomes, not I prayed about it. But my attitude becomes one of, yes, I prayed about it. And yes, I'm seeking the Lord over this. And yes, I'm going to walk in humility before God and before other people as I try to get a word from the Lord on this. And let me tell you, when you and I have to pray about stuff, we don't always get an answer immediately. Sometimes it takes a while. And so when we usually say, I prayed about it, it's because we tried to manipulate God to give us the answer we want in our time frame. Instead of going to the Lord and saying, I'm going to take this before the Lord and I'm going to pray about this as long as I need to pray about it until God answers, not only with an intellectual answer, but until God changes my heart and my attitude and I get peace from God about how I'm going to respond to this situation. About where God is in this and what God is showing me and what God is teaching me 
in this situation. And that's what Daniel and his friends did. They went before the Lord and they said, God, we got to get a word from you. But Daniel was not freaking out. He wasn't having attitude. He wasn't running around the palace screaming and hollering about, oh, God's got to get us out of this. Or how in the world did God bring us to Babylon so I could be, we could be killed, la, 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 et cetera, et cetera. It was like, Lord, where are you? You got something. You're in control. We just need to find you today. We need a word from you. We need a dream interpretation. And we're going to trust you to do that. Now, Daniel begins to thank God. And all I want you to see the richness of his prayer. Verse 20. He says, first word there in verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. The word blessed there is a word that means to kneel. To bow down. We're either going to bow before the Lord or we're going to bow before our fears. Now notice what he says, continuing in verse 20. Blessed be the name of God. The word that's translated name there is a fascinating Middle Eastern word. It means your reputation. He said, blessed, I adore the reputation of God. Think about that. I adore the reputation of God. God's reputation is that he has shown up over and over in my life. He has shown up not just in Israel, not just in Jerusalem, but he has shown up on the desert getting us to Babylon and he has sustained us. He has shown up in Babylon today. He is as relevant and as powerful in Babylon as he was in Israel. God's reputation of faithfulness, of his presence, of being there. Folks, when you and I go to bless the Lord and praise the Lord, rehearse the reputation of God in your life. What has God done? What is God doing? Look back over the years, look back over the months, look back over the days, whatever you've got to look back over and look at God's reputation. It starts in Bethlehem when he was born, continues through his life, continues to the cross, continues through the resurrection. But his re reputation of his work in our lives, day in and day out. And he will prove that he is as sufficient in your Babylon as he was in your Israel. That he is present and he is at work. Lord, I bless your reputation. And then he says, the reason I bless your reputation forever and ever, is because to you belong wisdom and might. The word wisdom there is the idea that God gave him the revelation of the dream and the interpretation of the dream. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now notice how he goes on in verse 22, speaking of the Lord, his reputation. He reveals Deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. The idea of what is concealed. In other words, God knows the unknown. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. Daniel says, hey, I may be in Babylon. And I may have to deal with things here that are concealed. That are like in darkness. But God knows what's in the darkness. He knows what's concealed. He knows what is in the unknown. And the light dwells with him. I know where the light is. How many times in life do we feel like we are in the darkness? That we don't know what's coming next. We are usually scared about what is coming next. But God says to us, hey, I got this. I know what's in the darkness. 
And I'm the light to show you how to get through the darkness. I am, Jesus said, the light of the world. I've often used this illustration when I've conducted funeral services. But years and years ago when I was a little boy, I was out at a camp uh, with a whole bunch of dads and their sons. And we were around a big campfire and we'd done the evening program and it was time to, to go to our cabins. And in between where we were and the cabins was this forest that we had to walk through. And it was dark. And it was later in the fall. And it was cool. And I remember as a child looking into that forest that we were going to have to walk through. And it was spooky and it was scary to me as a kid. And my dad, I remember, did two things that night. He took my hand and he turned on his flashlight. And when dad took my hand and turned on that flashlight... I was not scared to walk through the forest anymore. And what God says to us when we have to walk through the forest in the dark is that I'm going to take your hand and I'm going to turn on the light because I am the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The light dwells with him. And then Daniel moves in and he stands before the king and he begins to describe to King Nebuchadnezzar the image, verse 32. He says, King, you dreamed, and in your dream there was this tremendous image that appeared. It had a head of gold, which stands for you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the top dog. You got the greatest riches. You are the man of the hour. I'm sure as Daniel was saying that, he was saying, thank you, God, you started this dream interpretation with that, because if I can butter the guy up, maybe I can get through the rest of this interpretation without getting my head chopped off. And then he says there, the next part of it was there were chest and arms of silver. And then there were middle, the middle part of the body and the thighs were of bronze. And then there were legs of iron. And then the feet were made of iron and clay. Now what we believe, and Daniel goes on to give the interpretation here, is that Nebuchadnezzar right now as the head of gold is basically the greatest monarch that is in power at that time. He's the top dog, and gold being the most valuable metal that was known. All of these other aspects of the image and the various metals that they are made of, of silver, bronze, iron, etc., are the successive kingdoms that will follow the Babylonian kingdom. But none of them will be as great as Nebuchadnezzar. None of them will have the power of Babylon. Now, there's a lot of basic interpretation as to what these various aspects of this image represent. And if you study Middle Eastern history and ancient history following the Babylonian kingdom, you have the Persian kingdom, you have the Greek empire, you have the Roman empire. Some believe, for example, that the legs of iron are demonstrative of the Roman empire. Again, I'm not going to get into arguing the details of that because there's a lot of interpretation as to what they were. But basically, Nebuchadnezzar, your top dog, all the kingdoms that will follow you will be great, but they will not be as great and as powerful as you are. And that's the interpretation that he gives him. Let's look at verses thir- beginning with verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. 
But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Then over to verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Now, it's fascinating what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar here. Nebuchadnezzar, you had this dream. And in this dream, you had this head of gold, which represents you. And your kingdom is the greatest and the most powerful. And then all these other kingdoms are going to follow. So you got all these other kingdoms represented by all these precious, strong metals. But Nebuchadnezzar, there's an interesting thing that happens at the end of this dream. There is a stone that gets hewed out of a mountain. And the stone hits the feet of the image and crushes the feet of the image. And then the image falls over and then the stone begins to attack the image. And it begins to crush every metal that's in this image. The iron, the silver, the gold, the clay, everything that's in the image. And it crushes it to the place, Nebuchadnezzar, that it becomes just like fine dust. And then the wind blows, and when the wind blows, it blows it all out. And there's nothing left, Nebuchadnezzar, but the stone. And then that stone that seems so small, that just crushed the image to fine dust, begins to grow and begins to grow and begins to grow till it fills the whole earth. And he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to come a kingdom that's going to overturn all the other kingdoms of this world. It's going to obliterate all the kingdoms of this world. And once all those kingdoms are obliterated, that stone is going to rule supreme. Now, what in the world is Daniel talking about and what is God trying to say? Verse 20 of this chapter, it says that to the Lord God belonged wisdom and might. The word might in verse 20 Again, as a Middle Eastern word that means victorious warrior. It is the idea that God is working out his plan and he will work out his plan and his purpose as a victorious warrior. Back to verse 45. Nebuchadnezzar, you saw a stone that was cut from a mountain. The stone is God himself. Speaking of God's strength and God's reliability. I want you to think about this with me as we follow this prophecy of this stone. The Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Small, little insignificant, quiet baby on the backside of a street in Bethlehem. Other than the shepherds that night, nobody really took notice as to what was happening. For the next 30 years. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And he went about the work of a carpenter. In the carpenter's shop of his dad Joseph. And nobody really took a whole lot of notice. Of him. The stone was small. Insignificant. And quiet. At the age of 30. He's baptized by his cousin John the Baptist. And there's that voice that rings out as he comes out of the water. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus 
begins to move out into the streets and the countryside of Israel. And he begins to confront kingdoms. Not political, physical, visible kingdoms. He begins to confront kingdoms that no king has been able to conquer. He begins to confront the kingdoms of sickness in the lives of people and he brings healing. He begins to confront death and he raises people from the dead. He confronts the ravages of sin in people's lives and he says go and sin no more I'm going to forgive you I'm going to heal you I'm going to put you together I'm going to put you on a new track in life and then he goes to the cross at the end of three and a half years of ministry and when he gets to the cross on the cross he confronts the kingdoms of sin and guilt and shame, and the darkness, and the power of evil in all of its essence, and in all of that that it is. He confronts it on the cross. Follow me on this, folks. On the cross, Jesus was not hanging on the cross, taking a beating from our sin. He was attacking our sin. He was attacking our guilt. He was attacking our shame. He didn't lay on the cross and take a beating from Satan. He attacked Satan on the cross and from the cross. When at the end of three and a half hours, when Jesus said, it is finished, he wasn't saying he was finished. He was saying the power of Satan was finished. The power of darkness was finished. The power of the grave was finished. Death was served notice that it was on its way to being finished. Three days later, he walked out of the grave victorious. Victorious over everything that he had attacked, over everything that had come after him. He walked out of it victorious and as such, he walked out of it as the stone that was now beginning to fill the earth. It had crushed everything. Not being crushed by it, but he had crushed it as he walked out of that grave victorious. His resurrection marked the beginning of the end of death. And under his lordship, we have been called to join him in what he's doing. As we sit here today, think about all the kingdoms that have come and gone. Babylon's no more. Persia's no more. Roman Empire is no more. There will come a day when the United States is no more. Every kingdom and nation we know to this day will come a day that it's not around anymore. That's been going on for 2,000 years. But you see, when it talks about this kingdom gets bigger and bigger and bigger, Daniel was essentially prophesying that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ was going to get larger and larger and larger. It was going to permeate, and it will culminate in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, I'm not downplaying our situation these days politics, etc. But I want to say this to you. This is temporary. Everything in this life is temporary. His kingdom is eternal. And that's where our hope is. And that's what we're living for. His eternal kingdom. And so Daniel stands there and he says, I'm not freaking out. I'm not freaking out because I got a word from God. But I am not freaking out Because Nebuchadnezzar, you're temporary, 
And I'm serving the one who is eternal. I'm serving the one who is in control. Nebuchadnezzar, I want you to understand that all the kingdoms of this earth will someday pass away. But his kingdom, the kingdom that is to come, is going to last forever. And Jesus laid it all out there when he came. And he says, the kingdom is among you right now. So what's the answer? Don't freak out. God is in control. Pray like it. Live like it. Pray through it. Pray through to the victory that he has already achieved. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you this morning that we serve you and that, Jesus, you're in control. There are a lot of times in life when it does not appear that you are in control. But following you, Jesus, means that we trust you. Lord, thank you we can look back on your reputation. Lord, we can look back on all those kingdoms that have come and gone, those nations that have come and gone, but you're still there, Lord. You're still ruling, and you're going to bring this someday to an ultimate and final culmination when you come again. And so, Lord, we live for that, we look for that, and, Lord, we don't need to freak out. We need to trust you and follow you even when it seems that everything is out of control. We give you praise this day, Lord. And Lord, we again remember those words that you said, follow me. Don't follow your emotions. Don't follow what's going on around you. Follow me. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you are listening through our various media outlets or right here in this room, and this day you want to follow Jesus, and you choose to follow Jesus. That I want to encourage you to pray a simple prayer to him. Lord Jesus. This day. I will follow you. Lord this day. I will follow you. And let me encourage you if you prayed that prayer. Contact us through Facebook through email, here in person. We would love to place in your hands a simple book that can help you grow in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we honor you and we bless you this day in your name. Amen.